It's Thursday, February the 22nd. This week, we pay for Trudeau to take a vacation. A court case in Saskatchewan puts a spotlight on race relations in Canada. The Ontario election drama continues. The gun debate explodes in the U.S. And we look at a scandalous history story for Black History Month. And a great man passes away. Wow, that's a lot. So let's get started. Okay, Trudeau takes a paid, a tax paid vacation. So he's claiming it's a business trip, but it is not. It is a vacation, a vacation to India. So he arrived in India. He's greeted by this low level nobody. He never gets any visits from any senior members of the Indian government. Very embarrassing. And he spends his entire time dressing up in costumes and taking his family around to take pictures in front of famous buildings. I thought liberals were actually against this. In fact, I think they have a term. I think it's cultural appropriation. I thought at Halloween they were telling everyone that dressing up in costumes from other cultures is racist. I don't think it's racist, but I'm pretty sure liberals think it's racist. Have you ever taken a vacation that you got a really great deal on? but you just had to sit in on one meeting and maybe hear about timeshares or something like that. That's basically what Trudeau did. He traveled all around on our money, then took one meeting. Apparently in this meeting though, he made a billion dollar deal for Canada. Okay, if that happened, then maybe it was worth it. But then we get into the details of this billion dollar deal. So Canada is giving India, $750 million. India is giving Canada $250 million. So when you do the math, it equals Canada gets screwed. We lost $500 million in this deal. I know Trudeau thinks Canadians are all racist and stupid, and maybe he was shocked to find out that we can actually add he had to backtrack a little bit, and here's what he said. Trudeau initially said the entire $1 billion was money coming into Canada, but his officials later corrected that it was a two-way trade with one quarter coming from India into Canada and the rest going the other way. By the other way, it means we gave $500 million to India. On Twitter, I asked people how they felt about this trip. What I heard back were Canadians that would love to afford even a camping trip with their family. I heard from Canadians who have not gone away on vacation in years. And seeing pictures of our Prime Minister flaunting his tax-paid vacation, it was disgusting to them. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 19, Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So advice to Trudeau. If you want to be successful, start with being truthful. Before Trudeau left for his vacation, because that's what it was, he spoke to the press about a court case with a non-guilty verdict in a murder charge. He said he felt sad for the victim's family and that changes have to be made to our justice system. He said, Canada, we can do better. So I needed to look into this story. What story is it that's going to make Trudeau change our justice system? That seems kind of severe. The media said the story this way, and this is a quote. There were sobs of despair and cries of murderer in a Saskatchewan courtroom Friday night as a jury found a white farmer not guilty in the shooting death of an indigenous man. So here's the actual story. 
Gerald Stanley was at his farm. He was fixing his fence. His wife was nearby. A group of young men drove onto his property in an SUV. They'd been drinking and they just came from a nearby farm where they tried to steal a vehicle. They had a loaded gun in their car. So Gerald Stanley grabbed his gun and he tried to get the young men off his property. Things got really, really heated and at one point, Gerald believed his wife had been hit by the SUV. He tried to reach into the SUV and in the chaos, his gun went off. He shot a young man, Colton, in the back of his head. Gerald has claimed he never intended to kill anyone. He was flustered, he was panicked, he felt his life and his wife's life was in danger. But even though he felt his life and his wife's life were in danger, he did not use the self-defense because he claimed he never meant for his gun to go off. The story seems to show that maybe, maybe Gerald was perhaps guilty of manslaughter, but the Crown charged him with second degree murder. However way you look at it, that was not second degree murder. Then came the court case. In our court system, both the defense and the prosecutor can dismiss up to 14 juries for no reason. So while the jury is being picked, the defense and the prosecutor can pass on a jury member for any reason they want. The defense passed on any jury member that looked native. So the media screamed racist. They forgot to mention, however, that the prosecutor also turned away any white men over the age of 50. So both sides used race. So he was found not guilty. During the trial, the prosecutor's witnesses, who were the other men in the SUV, they all changed their stories. They admitted to being drunk, they admitted to having a loaded gun, they admitted they had tried to steal a vehicle, and they all changed their stories from their original story. After the verdict, Trudeau met with Colton's family and promised them he was going to change our justice system so this would never happen again. So what would never happen again? It sounds like this farmer was minding his own business when all of this chaos came into his life. He never asked for this. He never went out looking for trouble. Our justice system is older than Canada. It's a system we took from the British. It's worked for hundreds of years and it does not need to be fixed. So how do we look at the story from a Christian worldview? First of all, any racist comments you hear are from Satan and need to be called out as evil. Don't stand for it. A family lost their son and that is heartbreaking. The farmer's life was also changed forever. Gerald will never be the same. His reputation will never be the same. He will always be the man who killed Colton. The entire story is sad. When looking at this story, remember how the book of Psalms opens. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, that doesn't stand in the way of sinners, that doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 says, Walk with the wise and you will become wise. Walk with the foolish and you will be destroyed. What we can learn is pick wise friends. Don't spend time with friends that are drinking and driving, stealing cars. It's not going to end well for you. Meanwhile, Stephen Harper, do you remember him? Do you miss him yet? I do. He was our 22nd Prime Minister, and I'm going to say I'm pretty sure the best Prime Minister Canada has ever had. He has just been named the head of the International Democrat Union. Now, don't let the word Democrat fool you. 
This is not the liberal American Democrats. This is a group that was founded in 1983 by George Bush and Margaret Thatcher. Stephen Harper said the challenge will always be effectively promoting our conservative values, offering alternatives to the bad ideas of the left, winning elections, and governing well. In this day and age, it is also in many countries ensuring that we address the concerns of frustrated conservatives so that they do not drift to extreme options. Awesome. We are so proud of you, Stephen Harper. So our Ontario election blows up. So just to recap and catch you up in case you haven't been paying attention. Two women came forward saying Patrick Brown, the leader of the Conservative Party, sexually assaulted them. Immediately, the party throws Brown under the bus and he's left with no choice but to resign. This makes Brown look super guilty. Then the race of who will be the new leader. Three main names come up. Christine Elliott, Doug Ford, Caroline Mulroney. Then, just before the first debate, another name emerges. A name I've heard of before, but a lot of people in Ontario have not. Tanya Allen, a woman who's been fighting the government to get rid of the, our ridiculously bad sex ed curriculum that we have in Ontario. Then, the day before the debate, some facts come out that show the two women are liars. One who said she was in high school when Brown took her to the bar and bought her drinks was actually in her mid-20s. And the girl who said Brown took her to an upstairs bedroom and closed the door and then assaulted her had clearly never been in his one floor open concept apartment that doesn't have an upstairs or a bedroom door. Then minutes before the debate, news broke that Patrick Brown was saying he had not resigned and he was still the leader of the party. This was actually more fake news. Brown then came out on Twitter saying the story was false. Then the next day after the debate, the Conservative Party throws Brown out of caucus. He then walks into the Conservative headquarters and enters the race. Wow! Apparently Brown was in the hospital having minor surgery and people came to him in the hospital and told him they believed him. They told him they still see him as their leader. This convinced him to run for the party. So now Brown is back in the race. I feel for Brown. Twice in my lifetime, I've been betrayed by people I cared about and trusted. Twice in my time in ministry, people who wanted to move church in a direction they knew I wouldn't agree with lied and threw me out of the church. In one case, it was so they could make the church an extremely conservative church. And in another case, it was so they could toss out the senior pastor to make way for a younger pastor. The senior pastor was my dad. Even if he wasn't my dad, I would never agree to get rid of a pastor just so you can have a younger face. I share the story for a few reasons. One, it didn't end well for either of these churches. And if the Conservative Party did set up Brown to get rid of him, the Conservative Party will be the one that ends up suffering. Two, going through these things made me a different person. And when I hear about people who are lied about and thrown under the bus in order for others to succeed, I am very much moved to stand with the person who's been wronged. It seems to me in this case, Patrick has been wronged. Three, it's another reminder that truth matters. As a Christian, I don't believe in karma. I do believe in the biblical principle that we reap what we sow. Patrick Brown entered office with the promise he would be a socially conservative leader. In fact, the group that Tanya Allen runs endorsed Brown. It was their endorsement that made me join the conservative party and vote for Brown. I also volunteered to get others to sign up for him as well. He lied. 
he was not socially conservative at all. He voted with the Liberal government on all the social issues. So the drama will continue. If you've not joined the Conservative Party, it's too late to sign up now. For those of you who are members, we now have a choice between five candidates. How does a Christian handle all these stories? All these stories have a similar thread. Truth. Truth matters. Trudeau needs to be truthful and call his vacation a vacation. And then it'd be nice if he paid for his own vacation. He needs to be truthful when saying a billion dollar deal for Canada was not actually a billion dollar deal. It was a 500 million giveaway of Canada's money. The media needs to be truthful when covering stories. And all the chaos in the Ontario election, everything wraps around a story full of lies. It's time for us to stand up and demand truth. Meanwhile, in the States, the gun debate starts up again. Last week, I didn't talk about the shooting of Florida. Although our podcast goes live midnight Thursday morning, I record the podcast on Wednesday. As I was recording, the news was coming in that someone had entered a school in Florida and had shot students. At the time, it was unknown if there was any fatalities. I didn't add it into the podcast because not enough information was known. I'm not going to go into all the details because the news stations have talked about nothing else. And if you're like me, you're tired. Tired of the fighting, the blaming, and the lies. As a Christian, there's nothing but sadness in this story. The death of young lives. A young man that appears to have faced trauma in his life and that gave his heart over to the evil thoughts in his mind. And a nation that instead of coming together has turned on itself to blame everyone except the killer. And this is where I want to stop. The dividing. There are two sides to an argument and both sides need to be heard. The people who want to keep the right to own guns are not evil people who want to kill children. Telling people if they believe in the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights means they hate children and are guilty of murder is not a good way to express your point of view. I've seen people who I admire posting comments that the Republican Party literally has blood on its hands. First of all, can we please stop using the word literally unless it's actually literally? Second, the Republican Party has a reason for wanting to keep the Second Amendment. They want citizens of America to be more powerful than the government. And for those of you who believe in the Bill of Rights, saying that those who are upset and don't want guns in America must hate America and want a dictatorship government, that's also not helpful. As I said earlier, there are people I admire who take this stand. And I can understand this argument because I used to believe it myself. The idea of there being no guns in the whole world sounds great. Imagine it. It could be beautiful. It's also never going to happen. But for those who are wishing for this world and are trying to find a way to achieve it, calling them stupid or dictators is not helpful. So here are both sides of the argument in a nutshell. One side wants to follow the example of other countries and limit or end gun use. Their hope is to limit gun violence. They point to countries such as Australia and Canada, where I live, where there's limited gun use and less crime. They truly want a safer place to live, and they think less guns could do that. The other side believes the right to bear arms was placed in the Bill of Rights for a reason. In case you're unaware, this is what it actually says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This side also points to countries. Like in 1929, 
when Joseph Stalin took all the guns from civilians and then killed 20 million of them. They had no way to fight back. Mao took the guns away in 1935, and then he killed more than 20 million. Hitler took all the guns away from Jews in 1933, and we know what his plan was. Pol Pot took all the guns away in 1976, and then he killed 2 million unarmed citizens. The right to have guns is not for hunting and it's not for sport. It's to be able to form a regulated militia. The Second Amendment was placed as a safeguard that would mean the government would never be more powerful than its citizens. They don't want children shot in school. They want children to be free to go to school in safety. They also want children to grow up in a country that is free. A little sidestep into history that's kind of interesting. During the Civil War, Republicans who lived in the South did not want to fight for slavery because Republicans were against slavery. The Southern state governments forced them to fight for slavery and they used their guns to fight back against the Southern state. If you want to know more about this fascinating history, you should watch this movie called The Free State of Jones. It's awesome and one of my top favorite movies. Okay, so we all want children to live and not die. We all want gun violence to end. We may have different ways of looking at doing that, but we all need to just calm down and be rational. I'm working on a segment that will be on a podcast in a few weeks that looks at the history of the gun debate. What I'm learning while I'm doing the research for this segment is that the gun debate is messy and most history is messy. My advice is this, stop for a second and ask yourself, have you ever had your mind changed in an argument? If you've never had your mind changed, then you're probably not listening to the other side because it's not possible for you to be right all the time. You're wrong about something. So listen to what people are saying. Try to imagine the person on the other side of the debate as not being evil, but a good person with a different perspective, a perspective that might even be right. While you're having this argument, try to be honest. Okay, here are some lies that came out this week. Lie number one. There have been 18 school shootings so far this year. This lie comes from the Bloomberg's anti-gun group. They include in this 18 a suicide in an empty school parking lot at night. It includes an accidental discharge of a police weapon when he was visiting an elementary school. It includes a student firing weapon in a class project that was supposed to not be loaded. It includes any incident that involves a gun and was on school property. In reality, there have been three school shootings this year, which by the way is really bad. So just stick with that because it's bad and it's also more believable. Number two, the killer was a white nationalist who did drills with a white nationalist group. This is false. The police said this is false, and yet it was reported on every major news network. Number three, mass shootings only happen in America, or at least they happen way more often in America. The way they get this stat is to say any time more than one person is shot, it's a mass shooting. This means all the gang violence in America counts as mass shootings. America has a major gang problem. It's actually really, really bad. But those gangs are in places like Chicago and New York where they already have very strict gun laws. If we say mass shootings involve more than 15 deaths, then other countries are way higher than America. Europe, Africa, India, Pakistan, 
all of these places have a higher rate of mass shootings once you say the number of deaths is over 15. Lie number four, it's Trump's fault. He should make a gun law. Trump got rid of a regulations to stop mental health people from getting guns. Okay, this is false. The regulation he got rid of was a law that said, if you have someone else controlling your finances, you're unfit to have a gun. So for instance, if you have someone who's older and they have uh, their money coming in once a month and they have somebody else looking after that, they're not allowed to have a gun. Groups for people with disabilities were fighting this because they said the law was unconstitutional. Also, just so you know, Trump can't just make up laws. That's not how it works. A president can't just scratch out a line in the Bill of Rights. If that was possible, trust me, Obama would have done it. Lie number five. The NRA paid for the training of this shooter. That is not true. Lie number six. The NRA is killers. There have been exactly zero mass shooters in the U.S. that were members of the NRA. Zero. The NRA's goal is not to kill people, but to train people to defend themselves. As a Christian, how do we look at the story? One, we remember that God hates the shedding of innocent blood. He hates that 17 children he created were killed. He hates that one person he created allowed his heart to turn to evil. Two, we listen to people who have a different point of view with an open mind and be prepared to change your mind if you're wrong. Three, be truthful. Four, stand for life. What does that mean? It means whether it's a gun or something else, we stand for life. We fight against the killing of an innocent human being. In the United States, around 1,300 children a year are killed by guns. That's a lot. 1,300 children a year. But did you know that more than 2,000 a day are killed by abortions? 2,000 a day. We're shattered when we hear about children being shot in school. That's a place where they should feel safe. But what should be safer than your mother's womb? In Canada, at least 100,000 abortions happen. And if you're a taxpayer, you pay for every single one of them. That is 100,000 tiny humans killed every year. You have to speak for them. They can't organize a march. They can't get up and speak to the news cameras. This story shows that when people see victims, when they hear about the death of children, they're drawn to do something. So speak, tell their story, speak for life. One of the talks I give is how to speak for life. I will come to your group, your youth group, your ladies group, even your men's group. And I will show you how to speak for life. Okay, enough of the gun debate. Now it's time for history. It's still Black History Month. And today we're going to talk about a person whose entire life was a scandal. Even today, her life is a controversial story. In fact, I almost didn't tell the story because I'm not sure how well it's going to go over. But her life fascinates me. I first heard her story when I was studying the Revolutionary War. I heard a few things about her that made me really interested, so I began to study her life. The more I studied it, the more fascinating it became. So here it is. Sally was born in 1773 in Virginia. She was born a slave. Her mother was Betty. Her father was also her master, John Wales. See, already a scandal. 
She was the youngest of six siblings. Although she was the child of a white plantation owner, she was a slave because her mother was a slave. And the law at the time said, if your mother was a slave, when you're born, you are a slave. And it doesn't matter who your father is. Before Sally's first birthday, her father died. And she was sent to live with her half-sister, Martha, who had been married for about a year. Martha not only inherited baby Sally, she inherited 135 slaves. She also inherited a massive amount of debt. Martha's husband, Thomas, was an avid reader and writer. He was a lawyer and an inventor. His pride and joy was his homestead he was building. Before the inheriting of slaves, he did not have any slaves. He was very political and the world around him was changing quickly. Thomas was a lawyer and a member of the Virginia House. In 1769, just four years before Sally was born, he had tried to pass a law that would allow people to free their slaves. The law did not pass. So baby Sally is sent to Martha and Thomas's home. The couple now has 135 slaves and a mountain of debt. This is a debt the couple would not pay and would grow over time. When Sally is two years old, war breaks out and it's a war that would birth the United States of America. At age two, this really doesn't mean anything to Sally. It would, however, change her life forever. Martha ran the household as Thomas was away during the time of war. Sally was only three years old when Thomas wrote the Declaration of Independence. In the Declaration, he wrote about King George and he said, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred right of life and liberty in the person of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation. And he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms against us and to purchase that liberty of which he had deprived them of by murdering the people upon whom he intrude them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. This part that Thomas wrote in the Declaration of Independence was taken out before it was finalized because people thought it was a paragraph that would be viewed as a way to free the American slaves, including the 135 slaves Martha and Thomas now owned. It would have included little Sally. When Sally was nine years old, her master slash half-sister, Martha, died. Martha had lost three children who had all died as babies. Her daughter, Lucy, was born shortly before Martha died. Martha and Thomas had three remaining children, baby Lucy, Patsy, who was a year older than Sally, and Mary, who was five years younger than Sally. A year later, the War for Independence ended, and Thomas would be able to return to his homestead. Thomas tried again to pass an anti-slavery law. This time, he tried to pass a law that all the new area that was taken at the end of the War of Independence would be slave-free. This would make it illegal to own a slave in the areas that is now Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, and Missouri. The law failed to pass by just one vote. In that same year, Thomas left with his daughter Patsy for France. Thomas also took Sally's older brother James with him to France. While Thomas was working as Ben Franklin's understudy, James was in school learning the French cuisine. He became a great chef. When Ben Franklin left France, Thomas took the job as the ambassador to France. This would also change Sally's life forever. 
Then Thomas and Martha's youngest daughter, Lucy, became sick and died. Thomas immediately sent for his daughter, Mary, to come to France with him. And he asked that an older slave be sent to help take care of her. The slave that was supposed to care for Mary was pregnant and she was getting sick a lot. So right before the voyage, she decided she couldn't take the long trip to France. So the teenage slave, Sally, went in her place. In France, Sally lived with her brother. They were not slaves during their time in France. Slavery was abolished in France at that time. So both were paid a wage and both studied French. During her time in France, Sally attended parties with Patsy, who was only one year older than her. Thomas brought beautiful dresses for her, and the young girl began to change from a little slave girl into a sophisticated, classy young lady. During their time in France, Thomas is sent a copy of the Constitution. He refuses to sign the Constitution or endorse it in any way because the Bill of Rights is not added. His friend James Madison does not see the Bill of Rights as a necessity, but Thomas persuades him to add in the Bill of Rights. This gives Americans the freedom they have today, such as free speech and the right to bear arms that we talked about earlier. It does not, however, give freedom to the slaves. That won't be added to the Bill of Rights until 39 years after the death of Thomas. Had the freedom of slaves been added to the Bill of Rights, maybe the Constitution wouldn't have even been agreed upon. But if it would have been agreed upon, if slavery would have ended with the signing of the Constitution, it would have made for a completely different United States of America. Not having this in the Bill of Rights was a mistake that would leave a dark stain on the history of a great nation. It would also lead to the bloodiest war in America history, a war that would take the life of Sally's grandchildren. Sally also had to face the choice of slavery or freedom. This is a very fascinating part of her story. At age 18, Sally is given a choice. Thomas was asked by President Washington to return to America and serve as a Secretary of State. Thomas accepted the position. Sally and James were given the option. They could stay in France and live as free people or return to America as slaves. Both Sally and James decided to stay with Thomas and both returned to America as slaves. Historians say the reason they decided to return they didn't want to cut ties with their mother or their other siblings. They also had a really good relationship with Thomas. But there seemed to be another reason that Sally decided to return to America. At some time during the stay in France, the young Sally and the much older Thomas had begun a relationship. Sally left for France a young teen. She returned to America, a beautiful young lady with long straight black hair, well educated, able to speak and read in French and with the eye of the most powerful men in America. At the age of 22, Sally gave birth to her and Thomas's daughter, Harriet. Thomas was at that time the Secretary of State. Around this time, Sally's brother James was given his freedom. He had become a very good chef and wanted to work as a chef. It's unclear why James was given his freedom and not Sally. This is the part of history that's really difficult to understand. Why, once it was legal to free slaves, was Sally and the other 135 slaves not given their freedom? Had Thomas become accustomed to having them and now he felt he needed them? Was it because the debt he owed from his father-in-law had only grown over the years? And now if he was to free his slaves, the debtors would take ownership of them? 
Or was the love of politics now ruling his priorities and freeing all his slaves would make it difficult for him to win an election? We don't know the reason. What we do know is that Thomas had two relationships in his lifetime, his wife Martha, and after her death, Sally. Sally and Thomas couldn't be married. It was against the law for a white man and a black woman to marry. But the relationship was as close to marriage as it could be in the 17th century, with the added dimension that Thomas was Sally's master. It's a reminder, history is messy. When Harriet was only two years old, she passed away. A year later, Sally and Thomas' son, Beverly, is born. As Thomas enters the battle of politics, his fight to end slavery takes a back seat. As he enters politics, a spotlight is put on Sally, a spotlight she does not want. As Thomas enters the arena to run for the President of the United States, the press begins to talk about Sally. They accuse Thomas of having a relationship with her. Thomas and Sally have at this point had two children together. Thomas refuses to answer the accusation. The two parties running are the Federalists and the Republicans. The Federalists accuse Thomas of being in partnership with France. Because of Thomas's view of separation of church and state, they paint him as a heretic. They also paint Sally as a prostitute. In fact, the press will say, if Thomas is president, he will burn your Bibles. Your daughters and wives will be turned to prostitutes and he will force children to sing heretic hymns. Thomas wins the presidency, barely. And although history will never see Sally as a first wife, she was the only woman in a relationship with Thomas as he was the third president of the United States. While Thomas is president, Sally gives birth to another daughter and names this daughter Harriet as well. Thomas' presidency is successful. He builds the Navy. He wins a war against Libya. He buys land and doubles the size of the United States. They have children together while he is in office. Altogether, Sally and Thomas have six children. The children are all well-educated and play violin just like their father, and they're also slaves. Had America ended slavery with the writing of the Declaration of Independence, had America been open to the idea of a black woman and a white man being married, Sally could have been the first black first lady. Imagine how different history would be. As young adults, Harriet and Beverly both left the home of Thomas. Although they were labeled as runaway slaves, they were given money by the household and put on a stagecoach with tickets to Washington. Harriet and Beverly both lived as white people in Washington, D.C. Beverly lived as a carpenter and a fiddler. Harriet worked as a spinner in a shop before getting married. Both married well and both became part of the Washington Society. Sally stayed in a relationship with Thomas until his death, July 4, 1826. In his will, he granted freedom to his children. In a shocking surprise, he did not grant freedom to Sally. She was, however, given freedom by Thomas and Martha's daughter, Patsy. Sally lived with her son, Madison, who was a carpenter and eventually owned his own farm. Their other living son, Easton, was also a carpenter, but he would become a well-known musician. Madison would be the only child of Sally and Thomas who would take Thomas's last name, Madison Jefferson, the son of Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States and the writer of the Declaration of Independence. Sally died at the age of 62 in 1835, 92 years after Sally was born, 30 years after her death, slavery was abolished in America. Her grandchildren would fight in the Union side of the Civil War, 
one would die as a prisoner of war. Her great-grandson, Frederick Madison Robert, would become the first black descendant elected to public office on the West Coast. He served the California State Assembly for 20 years. Historians will debate the significance of Sally. For years, people would not acknowledge the relationship. It wasn't until the year 2000 that a DNA test proved the children of Sally were also the children of Thomas Jefferson. The fact that Sally was a slave of Jefferson puts the idea of a relationship into kind of an awkward box. Some claim it could not have been consenting relationship if he was a master and she was a slave. That definitely is uncomfortable to say the least. In fact, I personally go back and forth on how I feel about the story. What we do know is that Sally had only one relationship through her life. She had a monogamous relationship with Thomas Jefferson. We know she was beautiful. We know she was extremely intelligent. We know she raised incredible children. And she was, in my eyes, the third First Lady of America. That's our history lesson for this week. Yesterday, as I was putting the podcast together, I heard the news that Billy Graham had passed away at age 99. I end each podcast with a gospel message. So today, I'm going to read the words from a message Billy Graham preached. We have an idea that we, Americans, are God's chosen people, that God loves us more than any other people, and that we are God's blessed. I tell you that God doesn't love us any more than he does the Russians. He doesn't love us any more than he does the Chinese. He doesn't love us any more than he does the Africans. God doesn't love us any more than any other people. There is no changing with God. There is no partiality with God. The Bible says God is righteous. And there's a lot of you who can't understand the Old Testament when you read it. You know why? Because the Old Testament is teaching one thing. The Old Testament is teaching the holiness and the righteousness of God. You'll never understand it until you understand that God was teaching that he is a holy God. And no sin can come into God's presence because he's holy. God is a holy and righteous God. And the Bible says that God will judge the world. We have an idea today that God is like a Santa Claus, sitting on a cloud somewhere with a harp in his hand, forgiving everyone. God is not like that at all. God is a God of judgment. He is a God of righteousness and holiness. And the Bible says here that he will not wink at sin. You think that you can get away with your lying. I'll tell you, you cannot. You think you can get away with your cheating. I tell you, you cannot. You think you can get away with your adultery, your jealousy, your sins, and the lust in your heart, and the evil thoughts that you have, and the evil moments that you have. I tell you, God says we will be judged. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am a sinner, and you are a sinner. Every one of us is a sinner in God's sight. The Bible also tells that God is a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. The Bible tells us God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible tells us that because God is love, he created man. Why did God create us in the first place? He put us here, and he created us because he is love, and he wanted to have an object to love. And so he created the human race. We were perfect, and we had fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They were friends. God and man were friends. 
They walked together. They talked together. They planned together. And then one day something happened. Because when God created you, he gave you the ability to choose between right and wrong. He gave, the, he gave you the ability to choose whether you would follow God and serve him or whether you would live your life, your own life, and build your own life apart from God. When man came to that great decisive moment in his life, he turned away from God and decided that he would build his own life with God and he broke his covenant with God. He broke his relationship with God. He sinned against God. That's the reason we have war today. That's the reason we have racial tension today. That's the reason we have these problems in the world today. It's because the hearts of men are sinful. We are away from God. And that's the reason you have the problems in your personal life you can't solve. That's the reason there are things within your own heart you don't understand. God, looking down from heaven one day, saw this earth in its turmoil and strife and sinfulness, saw us in our lost condition, saw us in our sin. And the Bible says that God said, I love you. I love you. I love you. I want to save you. How could God? He fills all of space. He is the mighty God of creation that flung those billions of stars into space. So God did something that astonished the universe. God became man. That's who Jesus Christ was. He was God. And when I see Jesus making the blind to see, I see God. And when I see Jesus feeding the 5,000, I see God investing in the hunger and the desires of man. When I see Jesus dying on the cross, I see God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I see the nails in his hands. I see the spike in his feet. I see the crown of thorns in his brow. I hear him say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that terrible moment, Jesus was separated from God in a mysterious way that none of us can understand. And now God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Believe in him, receive him, and I will save you. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. They put him in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. And I do not offer you this afternoon a dead Christ. I offer you a risen Christ, a Christ that is on the right hand of God the Father and who is someday going to come to judge the quick and the dead. I offer you a triumphant Christ who is going to win. A lot of people say, do you think communism is going to win the world? They might win it temporarily, but it will only be temporarily because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to establish his kingdom and the church shall someday triumph. Someday, those of you who know Christ will reign with him. God within Christ will reconcile the world onto himself. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. Check out my webpage to hear more about my speaking ministry at lauraleesiemens.com.